So it set the bar really, really high. And after a while, all the students were running as fast as they can, trying to keep up with this one resident. He graduated. He went on to teach, I think, at the same hospital himself. But I believe he died very young of a heart attack. And it turned out he was a cocaine addict. That piece didn't get translated into the medical culture. But his drive and sleeplessness and sleep deprivation, that got codified. Welcome to Therapist Expanded, where we start a mental health revolution by living our dreams fully and freely beyond industry conditioning and taking every client with us, because we'll only take them as far as we've gone. So join me, your host, Aaron Gibb, and my trailblazing guests and be revolutionary by expanding your mind and your life to your freest and fullest potential. Hello, revolutionaries, and welcome or welcome back. Today, I am interviewing my friend and colleague, Megan Cahoon. And Megan really walks us through some of the fascinating history that I believe is at the root of the overworking and self-sacrificing mentality coupled with this superhuman kind of request that are typical in healthcare, asking people to work the kind of hours and do the kind of things that just are not sustainable. And to follow this episode, I will have an episode next time with Dr. Megan Mello, MD, who will give us her insight into leaving some of that culture and how she's paving a new path and supporting other physicians. And in the next episode, following will be with Dr. Rebecca Behrens, who again has left the normal system to have her MD practice be private. So I'm hoping this will be kind of a three-part series where we talk about the roots and then how doctors in particular are doing this differently. And I think there's a lot to learn there because maybe you'll make the same conclusion or a different one. But I think that Given the history that Megan Cahoon will be laying out today, there is a case to be made that all of healthcare is kind of built on the backs now of what started in medicine of asking things that are just not realistic. So I hope you enjoy this episode. As a reminder, in the show notes, you can find a link to my Monday Mind Ups email list. This is a bite sized piece of weekly content to really set the tone for your week and be a touchstone and to keep you aligned with your dreams. And so without further ado, here is my interview with Megan Cahoon. Okay. So Megan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And we'll start with tell myself in the audience about yourself, your work, and your passions in the field. My work is, I'm a generalist. I think if you work in Bruce County, you need to be a generalist. So that, yes, I have areas that I am particularly passionate about, but I don't, I rarely say no to someone uh, who wants to come in because of something that they're presenting. I certainly don't uh, claim to be a child therapist. So the young ones will be referred elsewhere. But for the most part, it's like, come on in and we'll see if we can figure something out. I've been doing this for 21, 22 years, 22 years, I guess. And I am a 
trained and registered marriage and family therapist, which does not have a technical technical meaning. Anybody can call themselves a marriage and family therapist. But I was trained from a relational point of view. So nobody lives as an island. And so the relationships that you build with yourself, with other people, with your community, uh, inform who you are and how you behave. I do a lot of couples work. I love doing family work. I find that really exciting. You never know what you're going to get when you have more and more people in the room. It's very, very different than traditional therapy training, which was based on an individual. And most of what people would run into when they think about psychotherapy, therapy, getting professional help, the assumption would be that the person is thinking about a disorder that they might have. And so some people are looking for a label. I have such and such disorder. Other people are terrified of being labeled as a disorder. I don't work with disorders. I work with people. So you can come in and say, I have this and this and this I've been diagnosed with. I go, okay, that's really interesting. What's it mean to you? Because I don't use it to pin people in in any way, Um, especially since the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is not grounded in science. There is no, technically, there's no legitimacy to it. It is a framework that a lot of people find helpful, a lot of professionals find helpful, but it is not the beginning, middle, or end of what makes people tick. You could talk to me about passions, and I'll talk to you about things that irritate me, and this is one of them. The DSM seriously irritates me because it's so confining. Let's see. So what, what, do, I, what do I do with someone who comes in? Um, I think that it's a grave disservice to the public when a medical professional tells them that they need something. And they often say, you need this medication, a psychotropic drug, or you need cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> and that always makes me roll my eyes because it's like the world has moved on so far past cognitive behavioral therapy. But yes, it's been studied up the wazoo. For decades, and yes, it does so show some good results, but that doesn't mean that that's the be and end all when it comes to psychotherapy. And I have had people ask me, "Do you do CBT?" And I'll say, "No." Oh, well, then I don't want to see you because my doctor says I can only see someone who who give me CBT. I said, "Okay, if that's really what you want, or we could start from where you are and see if this, what we wind up with is going to be helpful to you." Anyway, so there's some of my irritations. I find I can be very, very grumpy if I'm in a room full of therapists for this kind of reason, because it's like there's such this, it seems like there's such a narrow view about humanity. And it has never worked for me. When I've gone seeking therapy for myself, I listen for what kind of lens they're going to look at me through. And if it's a wide open lens, I can feel comfortable. If it's a narrow lens where they're looking to find, you know, something to hang on me, I fire them pretty quickly. So, and I, and I always encourage people, um, interview me. If you're not sure you want to work with me, that's great. Because maybe I don't want to work with you. It's got to be about good fit. Come on in, interview me and see if I'm worth your time. And, and it's a win-win if you decide that I'm not worth your time. So, and I think that's a good policy for any, any therapist is just trust that the people will find you if they're supposed to find you. And the ones that are supposed to be elsewhere will say thanks, but no thanks. Oh, yeah. I can relate to everything you said. I often feel like a black sheep in a room full of therapists. 
Mm-hmm. And that is the thing that is the, not that, but what you said about the non-pathologizing model is the cornerstone for me of bringing on any therapist I've ever brought on to the group practice that I run. And same with my business partner. So it's the tie that binds us. I love to celebrate people doing whatever kind of techniques, modalities, being who they want to be, but understanding that people heal themselves from the inside out and it isn't about pathology. Uh, I can't think another way. So I can appreciate other people who think a different way. That's perfectly fine. On this podcast, I'll have people who think in a myriad different ways. But as you're speaking, I really relate to everything you're saying. Thank you. It it led me to, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I think that irritation is what led me down the path of where does this bullshit come from? So I would start reading about the history of psychiatry, the history of psychology. Um, I learned in my training that marriage and family therapy came out of psychiatry because they couldn't get along with psychiatrists when uh, in the, and this wasn't that long ago, early 1900s, the mentally ill were housed in these giant warehouses and the psychiatrist would work in these buildings. There could be several thousand people housed in these giant sanitarium, sanatorium, sanatorium. And they would get better with help. They would get better and then they would go home and then they'd be back in a few weeks or a month. And there was a group of doctors that said, look, there's something happening when they get home. So we need to know what that is. Maybe we need to bring the whole family in. And then the other more traditional doctors said, no, that's nonsense. We're only going to stick with the individual. So it was a breaking off of two areas of expertise. And so the folks that wanted to do the more relational work called themselves marriage and family therapists. And of course, marriage is now an old fashioned word. So you can call yourself a couple and family therapist. But they, we have been somewhat marginalized because we don't use the same lens as um, the insurance companies expect and that the large corporations and organizations expect. I think you get the best work sometimes when you have the least amount of comfort to rely on. Mm. That's a powerful uh, statement. When, well, when, if, you're, if you're a little bit hungry, it keeps you looking, right? When you get too comfortable, you stop looking. Interesting. So, and in, in my, the years that I've been working, there's been, of course, psychologists that say, oh, of course I do family work, even though they haven't had no training in family work. So the theories have kind of bled over into psychology, which is good because that it needs to be there. And some of the psychological theories have bled over into marriage and family therapists. So it's a good thing, I think, that over time, there's going to be less distinction between us. But I still advise people, if you're looking for couples work, if you're looking for families work, then please make sure that the therapist has had specific training in, uh, in relational work, because it's very, very different than doing individual work. Very different. So anyway, the history led me to, I think, the story that you were talking about earlier about the, um, medicine in general became a really fascinating topic for me. The history of medicine. Why does Chinese medicine, why is it so different than Western medicine? Besides the fact it's been around for five or 6,000 years. Their whole lens is totally different than ours. So who's right? Well, maybe nobody's right. Maybe we're all just looking at the elephant from different sides. But um, the story that I, that I told you about uh, sleep deprivation. 
and how it came about in the medical field. So you, you know that residents are expected to stay up for three or four days straight, and that somehow is supposed to toughen them so that they can do the hard work of being a, a doctor, especially in the ER. Even though nobody would argue that you could possibly be a better doctor if you're sleep deprived, but somehow that's worked its way into the, into the system. And it came about, I think it was the late 1700s, maybe early 1800s in London at a training hospital, I think the big training hospital at the time. One of the residents was just an energizer bunny. Like he never got tired. He could uh, outperform the other students and he never seemed to sleep. And so the profs liked this and said, well, you know, Tom, if Harry can do it, why can't you do it? So it set the bar really, really high. And after a while, all the students were running as fast as they can, trying to keep up with this one resident. He graduated. He went on to teach, I think, at the same hospital himself. But I believe he died very young of a heart attack. And it turned out he was a cocaine addict. He had help in staying awake. But somehow that piece didn't get translated into the medical culture. But his drive and sleeplessness and sleep deprivation, that got codified into the culture, but not the fact that, uh oh, maybe we should use our common sense and not expect the impossible from, from people. So I find that kind of stuff really fascinating. When you, when you find something that sticks out, what's the history of that thing that, that sticks out? And for me, it was so fascinating to hear this because you mentioned it earlier how many clients come and they've come from their doctor. They've been referred. Mm -hmm. Their doctor has a way of looking at things and their doctor has a lot of power and people through our cultural history want to listen to their doctor. But health professions in general seem to have certain things that kind of are these ties that bind us. And some of these impossible expectations I see when I work with therapists the amazing conditioning about we need to be superhuman. And there's a lot of different ways this shows up. I'm going to do, and probably by the time this releases, I've already done some solo episodes talking about this conditioning. But I think when I heard this story from you, it was like a light bulb went off and I started understanding some of the lineage of how health professionals, and I'll include therapists here, have gotten this way of being and thinking and working that I think we're now questioning. We're absolutely now questioning more than and ever. We should. And yeah. we should. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, there was another piece of uh, information that I gleaned through some of my medical history stuff about Western medicine, the culture of Western medicine, that World War I uh, is when most of the death was happening because of physical injuries and they couldn't get, the doctors and nurses could not get to the men that were badly injured until the uh, Clara Bartons and the uh, Florence Nightingales decided to go out to the trenches and pull the men out and get, get them back behind the lines where they could be operated on. Once there was a system in place to pull the injured away from the trenches to behind the lines, they could set up the basically the mash units and work on them in there and get them get them to stay alive. So this was a big paradigm shift in the in the medical world. We just need to get to them faster so we can stitch them up. And of course, they didn't have blood transfusions. That was at the very beginning of the whole idea of transfusions. So it uh, created a wealth of information about how to stitch people up, and surgery became the the 
giant love affair that Western, the Western world had, because of course, these doctors on the, on the front lines were doing amazing creative work with very little by way of resources. But then of course they took the knowledge that they were building back to their home countries after the war. And then lots of funding from the government and, and from corporations were going into training programs so that there'd be a whole new generation of talented surgeons. So surgery became essentially critical to our well-being. And it got finessed as a result of World War I. World War II comes along, and the paradigm shift that happens then is antibiotics. Now we've got surgery, and now we've got drugs that can save lives. Because, of course, even if you can patch somebody up, you couldn't necessarily control the infection. So now they've got this double whammy of amazing uh, information and knowledge. They fall in love with surgery. Tons of money and and resources are going to building these academies of learning that's all about getting to be good surgeons. And then the academies are being built on, we just need to find a good drug. That's it. I'm not saying we need another world war, for heaven's sake. But those two branches have informed Western medicine since uh, for the last 100 years. And if you want to talk about mental health revolution, I don't know if this is the next paradigm that's going to happen. Of course, part of me really wishes that it would, because the brain is not separated from the rest of the body. So why do we talk about mental health? Why don't we just talk about health? I've never liked that phrase. I've never liked um, mental illness. I think in terms of emotional well-being, because it's not exactly mental. I mean, my thoughts are mental. Anyway, I can go around around circles about that. Chinese medicine has never separated the head from the body. So they've never been trapped by this idea that either it's in the lower part of your, you know, neck down area, or it's happening chin up. They didn't um, maybe have the, I don't know, I don't know enough about Chinese medicine to be able to talk about the, you know, how they've formed their ideas. Um, But I have been, um, like most people, really annoyed that we Westerners are, have such a poor record of helping with chronic conditions. It doesn't matter what the chronic condition is. If you go to your doctor, they will do the best that they can to give you a panacea, to give you a Band-Aid, to help you with the pain, to help you with the symptoms. But nobody is kidding anybody here. There's not going to be a cure for a chronic condition unless you go into the alternative field. The alternative fields are offering tremendous exciting possibilities. Actually, that's the revolution I would like to see. And it's not a mental health revolution. It's a health revolution. I just wanted to jump in that this is Megan answering the question I like to ask, which is what does mental health revolution mean to you? But I think you're making a very important distinction of that. Let's not cut the head off and just talk about that. Let's talk about the person as one whole being. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about the revolution you want to see is health revolution it is health yes where where western trained doctors are not frightened of things like nutrition <laughs> they've gotten to the point where they're saying yes yes you need more exercise they're comfortable with that but they don't pretend to know anything about nutrition unless they've taken a special interest themselves i think last i heard they western training programs they get maybe half an hour's information about vitamins and minerals maybe and what a good you know, the Canada Health. Uh, even I remember being in grade four and being introduced. So I grew up in the States. So in grade three or four, 
being presented with the uh, American Food Guide, or the, I can't remember what it's called, the U.S. Food Guide, looking at it and being told we're supposed to eat from all these different quadrants. And I see ice cream represented on that. And I go, well, that's stupid. I love ice cream, but I'm not going to try to lie to myself that it's a good food for me. Like, who are these people that are going to make up something so ridiculous? Maybe my cynicism started very, very young, but I've been somewhat mistrusting if anything didn't make sense to me. Yeah. So, when, so God bless the doctors. We need them. But I wish they would learn to say, I don't know. I really, really wish it would be okay for them to say, honestly, I have no idea about that. And then maybe you could go talk to a dietitian because they know a lot more about nutrition than a regular doctor. Or maybe you could do some research on your own because we have Google. There's a ton of information on the internet. And yes, a lot of it is gobbledygook and some of it is amazing. So yeah, health revolution where we incorporate um, knowledges beyond what the, the MD has gotten in school, I think is critical. In the States, they have, Have you heard of integrative psychiatry? No. No. It is the practice of a a psychiatrist being trained in nutrition and other things so that they can actually help the person deal with whatever chronic mental difficulty, emotional difficulty they might have. So, yes, they can prescribe, but the, the, the better healing is coming from the body looking after itself. So integrative psychiatry is, a bit, is, a, is around in the States. It, of course, will eventually get up here. Uh, there is functional medicine, which is probably the most exciting thing that I've heard about in medicine for a long time. And that is medical doctors that are trained in uh, naturopathy and some Chinese medicine and some chiropractic stuff so that they wind up truly with a holistic approach. They uh, provide the kind of, as my doctor said, provide the kind of medicine that we should all get. But of course, to go find a functional medicine doctor, because OHIP doesn't pay for most of the kind of work that they do, uh, you're paying out of pocket. And it really is uh, terribly expensive, terribly expensive. And yet there are functional medicine practitioners that want the information to be readily available to, to individuals that they're never going to see. So you can go to, to the computer and you can find the web, uh, webinars and the broadcasts and stuff of people that are training individuals on what to talk to their doctor about and what kind of foods are helpful for this kind of difficulty. So once you get a thread, you can do your own research. And it just depends upon how curious you are and how willing you are to listen to people talk about uh, integrative, whatever. Uh, and, and you can really do a lot for yourself, which, you know, considering how much pressure our Western system is under, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be great? Oh, yes. I mean, you're, yes, you're singing my song here. Mm -hmm. Yes, it would be great. And it is great to see people taking their health into their hands and feeling empowered what I'd like to do is in the show notes, put some links to some of the places you're talking about there where people can find mm-hmm. information. And I love what you said about and learning some ways to talk to their doctor because it's an interesting phenomenon as we're, as we're making this more of a union between sort of the East and West or the holistic and the allopathic that some doctors like your doctor, wonderful, are very open to that. They understand mm-hmm. um, that we're one whole person. And then there are some people I've worked with where they are met with 
hostility, resentment, resistance, and defensiveness and some power dynamics from their doctor that are not very helpful. So there's a, to know that there's maybe some great questions that might be helpful and just places people can find. And I loved Mm -hmm. what you said, because I find it really interesting when a client comes to me with a mental health diagnosis and says, so this is it. This is for me now. This is me. And I'll say to them, imagine that your arm was broken. And they'll say, okay. And I said, and imagine you walked around the rest of your life with this broken arm that was very evident and no one ever said it for you. And you went around in society, people would be constantly asking you, what's going on with that arm? Why didn't you get it fixed? Right? That's an acute injury. Doctors are excellent with acute issues. So they're walking around with this floppy arm. And they said, well, that would be crazy. And I said, "Um, yeah, so mental health is the same. We've just believed that we need to walk around with a label and just keep it. But it would be kind of as wild as walking around with that floppy arm. And some people that seems to get it and they'll say, okay, so what do you mean? And it's like the body heals itself. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. There are some things that obviously we do perish, but I really think of that floppy arm. It just sticks in my mind that we would be absolutely beside ourselves watching someone walk around with a floppy arm and people saying, it's totally fine. They're just going to have that forever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-uh. No, thank you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I appreciate everything you're saying here, and I love the the connections that your wonderful brain has taken you on to look at the history of like, how did we get here? Uh, Because many of us know this as a system that is growing and changing now, but has historically made a tremendous amount of errors looking at us through a reductionist lens. So I appreciate that. And the way we can look at this, how health professionals have been indoctrinated into this, how it's not necessarily... Yeah, indoctrinated. So I'd love to hear anything else you'd like people to know. There's there's a, a neat little piece of history that I think is relevant, particularly because we're still in a pandemic. So 100 years ago, um, at the conclusion of the First World War, if you recall from your history classes in high school, uh, the Western countries got together and hammered out the Versailles, the Treaty of Versailles which is when they decided how we're going to punish Germany because Germany's been bad. We're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. Woodrow Wilson was the president of the U.S. And I didn't know nothing about Woodrow Wilson when I went through through school. He was not one of the big names that captured our imagination. But evidently, this man was very strong opinions. He he didn't have a whole swarm of uh, assistants to lean on. He had to capture uh, a lot of information. And he was very opinionated that Germany could not be punished because it was going to be a problem down the road. We, that the people are hungry. We need to provide food. We need to provide support for, for the country. We need to rebuild. And then France and Britain and Russia, I think it was Russia, the other country, was, were just as determined that Germany would be punished. So I think the hammering out of the agreement took months and months. But in the meantime, Woodrow Wilson didn't have anybody else to speak. He was always at the table, always making his arguments. 
And he did say to his um, secretary, his vice president on his way over to, I think it was Paris where they were hammering it out. He said, no, no, I have perfect confidence that I can talk him into this because this is the right thing to do. So if you can imagine all these four powerful world leaders and one was confident that he could sway the other three. Then he got sick. He caught the flu. He caught the influenza of, of the day. And so they paused all the negotiations for a week or two while he got better. When he came back to the table, he was a changed man. He didn't have a strong opinion. He couldn't um, put his ideas out very clearly. And in the end, Germany got hammered. And Woodrow Wilson signed off on what the other three wanted. It was influenza that changed the one man's disease that changed the course of history. Mm. And as a result, they wound up with World War II because Hitler could not have gotten in to, you know, wheedle his way into the halls of power if Germany hadn't been so broken and hurting so badly. So Woodrow Wilson made the prediction that we actually had to live with, but it was the influenza that struck him down. Hmm. Yeah. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Can you see how that relates to our current context and even our medical context? The smallest things can have the biggest impact. The smallest things. And, and I, I think we need to be a lot more um, appreciative of vulnerability, a lot more respectful of vulnerability because just being strong quote, unquote, doesn't necessarily provide the most wisdom. Yes. And it reminded me of the idea of a homeopathic dose, Mm -hmm. the idea that a smaller dose Mm -hmm. is often more more effective. Finding, to me, finding the root cause, the root cause of things is also important. I was recently speaking with a doctor who was talking about how much difficulty they have giving a homeopathic dose of um, something that would help with perimenopausal symptoms. Mm-hmm. They don't give a full dose of an SNRI. They give a certain small dose that's actually pretty well known in doctor circles to right. help with all of those symptoms, mm-hmm. but it hasn't been researched in the way we think of research. So they can't really get support from anyone. It's very interesting in this evidence-based world, yet they know it works in, an, in a homeopathic small dose. Right. It works tremendously well. So where's the curiosity? Like to me, the definition of a scientist, this is what I was taught when I was really little. The definition of a scientist is somebody who just has unending curiosity and will follow, follow their curiosity wherever it will lead. We wouldn't have penicillin discovered if uh, Jonas Salk, had, was it Salk? The guy that came came to us with uh, penicillin hadn't been curious about what he saw in his Petri dish because he left it uncovered by accident. Absolutely. And yet I don't see a ton of curiosity amongst scientists, at least, in, you know, in the media. It's like, no, this is the way it is. And we've done this and this is what, and it's like, well, where's the unknown? And so you've got something like a homeopathic evidence that homeopathy works. And of course it works been working since it was discovered in the 1800s fits outside the paradigm of western medicine so therefore it can't be legitimate because because it makes us too uncomfortable 
because it and makes I, us feel uncomfortable. Absolutely. And I think that that's part of my goal here with this podcast is that some discomfort is so valuable when you look at it, we take one step back and you go, okay, I've been deeply conditioned. Once we accept that, and you talked a bit about that, some of the medical conditioning, and we've all been deeply conditioned as humans. We were all babies and we just wanted to love, be loved. We were curious. We were in the moment. Turns out most of the things I've done that were successful with people tend to bring us back to that. The moment, curiosity, open arms of attachment, love. But regardless, we've been conditioned in another way. And as therapists, we've been uniquely conditioned. So when we talk about something outside the box, that discomfort to me is such a great signal that we're rubbing against that conditioning mm-hmm. in this kind of mm-hmm. uncomfortable way, but what an opportunity. And so I know that what I'm doing here with people, there might, there might be some of that. People already listening to this could be bristling. For example, mm-hmm. people love CBT and I, I get that. I actually want to have a guest on. Um, he's a professor. I won't mention his name yet in case it flops, but or he doesn't want me to. But regardless, he has done some fascinating analysis of CBT research and has found that there's a 70% dropout rate in many of those studies. So actually, wow. a lot of the data is based on that it doesn't really work that well for most people, but the people it works well for is wonderful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A little bit like AA. Ah. AA doesn't have any scientific backing to it, but there are lots and lots of people walking around that wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for AA. But that doesn't mean it's for everybody. Sure. I just learned something interesting about Bill W. actually became sober after a psychedelic trip um, given in a lab, in a research lab, back Mm -hmm. in those days when they were doing great psychedelic research. Um, That's my opinion, obviously. Great. And he became sober. He had a lot of insight and then he formed AA. That's right. I remember reading that too. Yeah. 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 So another piece of medical history. Another piece of medical history. And I think we're on the cusp of something, for example, psychedelics being brought back in to research. And we're we're opening our minds. It's happening, but this beautiful discomfort at becoming mm-hmm. curious again about things that we were conditioned were bad, wrong, or just given another answer. I love that. Curiosity. Well, the old story about how we got to hand washing, you know that one. Right? I do not. Um, oh, I believe he was German. A doctor. So um, in, again, in the 1800s at a teaching hospital um, where women were delivering babies, they were starting to medicalize labor pregnancy and labor and but the doctors are often doing autopsies in the basement and then coming straight upstairs when a woman was in labor to deliver the baby and they weren't washing their hands about 50 percent of the babies maybe that many mothers were dying in hospital births and this one doctor Seinhauser started washing in some very very mild bleach solution and then found that his mortality rate dropped to almost nothing and so they didn't have a theory they didn't have the germ theory at that point but he said something is on our hands when we come up from the basement and we if we wash our hands the mothers do better the babies do better and he thought this would be good information you know that everybody would be happy about we can save lives 
it offended the rest of his profession. They were so offended, the idea that perhaps they had been killing mothers and babies, that they uh, refused to listen to him. They, he lost his job. He wound up um, dying only a short time later in poverty, absolute poverty. He moved to another country trying to, trying to uh, maintain his practice. That didn't go very well. And it wasn't until long after he died that the whole idea of the germ theory and washing your hands became normalized. Wow. It's a story. But that his is, life was destroyed. It is such a common story that mm-hmm. people innovate and are mm-hmm. treated like heretics. And, and then on standard. Absolutely. Right. So it, it encourages me in this moment. I'm glad you're putting this out here because this is the attitude I would love is that if we can just be open-minded, then that starts our questioning, our noticing, and our ability to expand what we think is possible. Because as you know, with this podcast, I believe that if therapists learn to see that anything is possible with what they want to do, we start to change our field. And it it does take noticing we're conditioned, being curious when we learn something that's contrary Mm -hmm. to that conditioning. It starts to open up possibilities. And that has a major ripple effect. So Megan, I'm so grateful that you've come on today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me, Erin. It's been a good conversation. I've enjoyed this. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Therapist Expanded. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast to help more of our colleagues join the revolution.